Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or falsely accuse, and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation, and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, fan is, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean, cleanse out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask now for a sight of Christ, that we would see your Son exalted 
in our minds and in our hearts as we gaze upon your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we we started looking at all these verses last week, and this summary, which Luke gives us of John's ministry, uh, such an important ministry, and the Gospels summarize it so concisely. Uh, According to Christ, the most important prophet of the Old Covenant age, and he doesn't get a, a major work of 60 chapters like Jeremiah. Uh, he doesn't get even a, a short book in his name. We just get these short glimpses in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, this, I think, may be the longest one of the summaries of John's ministry. And then in John, we just get these paragraphs scattered throughout the first three chapters. And yet such an important ministry. And here in these short verses, uh, we, we really see three aspects of his ministry. Last week, we began looking and we saw two of these. We saw that John prepares the way through humble repentance, calling the people to humble repentance. Not based on their genealogy, their heredity, but based on repentance before God. Then we also considered that John surveys the heart by assessing the fruit. People come to him, they come for baptism. They, they come repenting, at least by word, they come repenting. And they ask him, but what do we need to do? In addition to this thing, repentance, that we are coming with to be baptized, what do we need to do? And he gives them very clear and particular areas of a repentant life, of a life transformed by true repentance, each particular to their own temptations and their own struggles, the the things they are prone to. And John did this even to those who didn't repent. He did it to Herod himself, calling him to repentance as well. But John, to those who are repenting, is pointing them to the fruit of repentance. Now, if you're really repentant, well, don't don't be discontent. Don't lie and falsely accuse. Don't steal what isn't yours. Be content. Bear the fruit that fits with a repentant heart. The, the thing that happens throughout history, not just to John, but to any gospel preacher, is that you get about this far and people start having the hope of salvation in the wrong things. They, they may come to repent, but the, the way that they think starts subtly being tempted towards a false gospel. So, We could think, for example, of the fruit of repentance. And what do we start doing? We want to put the hope of my salvation in whether or not I see enough fruit in my life. So I I might ask myself, am I truly repentant? Am I truly saved? Well, I gave a coat away to a man on the side of the road last week. So I'm doing okay. My spot is secure. Or we 
fail to have assurance because we say, I haven't given a coat away to anyone in a while. Maybe ever. And I don't give away that much food either. And so we, we look at the fruit, which is given so that we can assess whether there's anything coming out of a repentant heart, right? But do I have a repentant heart? Well, is there fruit coming out of it? And yet we put our hope of salvation in that thing. The third thing we find about John in our passage is that John faithfully points us to the source of hope. He faithfully points us to Christ who is coming. He points us for our hope away from the fruit to the one who brings salvation. It might not be your fruit that you look at. If you have someone as dynamic as John, who was quite dynamic, there's also the other temptation of celebrity pope, right? Uh, I was baptized by John. And John, John faithfully points us to the one who comes in three ways. And the first of them is to cut off the ability for us to do celebrity worship. So he first faithfully points us to the one who comes by humbly remembering his own place. We find this as they come and they're wondering, they're wondering if John is the Christ. Is he the hope for lost sinners? And what a temptation for any celebrity pastor to think, or any pastor, to, to think, why, yes, I am. I'm that great, especially if all Jerusalem's coming out to you to hear you. But we find John not only calls on us for humble repentance, but he displays humility by remembering his own place. He declares, no one greater than I is coming. How much greater? I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. What a degrading position. What's your job? I tie someone's shoes. But John says, I don't even deserve that task. I'm so far beneath him. His implication is, I'm I'm not even worthy. I, I will bring disgrace to him by touching his feet. That, that's what John is implying. I'm not even holy enough and righteous enough to touch his feet. That's a humble attitude on his part. And it's just one example that the Gospels give us of John remembering his place, his humility in, uh, in this relationship with Christ. John presents us with a sampling of John's preaching concern, concerning Christ. All of it has this humility of remembering one's place. So in John 1, verse 15 John says, this is he of whom I said he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me. 
Remember that John is six months older. From a human perspective, he wasn't before John. John is saying something astonishing here, even if the people miss it. John is saying that Christ is pre-existent. We spent some time on that in December as we looked at the Advent portions of Luke. But John is outwardly confessing it. He was before me. He's pre-existent. His birth as my cousin is not his beginning. His conception in Mary is not his beginning. He already was when I was not. And John, the other John, the apostle, picks up on that thought because he immediately follows up on recording that thought of John the Baptist's in verse 16 of John 1 with this uh, deeper explanation. And of Christ's fullness we have received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Apostle John says, he's not like you and me. He's the only begotten Son. And so John the Apostle and John the Baptist are united in their thought that Christ was. Christ will later say it, before Abraham was, I am. But John and John both get to that point in John chapter 1. Then later in John chapter 1, John the Baptist gets even more specific and emphatic about Christ, declaring openly as he literally points at Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John 1, 29 and 34. And then John gets even more emphatic in his humility and Christ's exaltation in John chapter 3, which we read earlier in our service, John 3, 22 and following where he uses an illustration. What is my job as the herald for the king? And John says, my job is the job of the best man. A lot of customs have changed over 2,000 years, but John's point is still easy to get, isn't it? I, hopefully this isn't true for any of you. I have been at weddings where... Everyone cringes at the best man. He gets up. He's going to give his toast. He makes the groom look really stupid. Or he makes himself look really great. And in the process, you lose sight of the bride and the groom altogether. It's all about him. And we all know that that's not the way it's supposed to work. 
And then we've all been at weddings with a good best man or a good maid of honor. And they give their speech. And two hours later, you'll never remember their face or their name, but you might remember what they said because they made much of the bride and the groom. John says, that's what I'm here for. I'm supposed to recede into the background and be forgotten. And in the process, I'm supposed to make him shine. And then he gives those amazing words. He must increase, but I must decrease. Has there ever been a a more astonishing way of humbly remembering one's own place? J.C. Ryle calls on all ministers to imitate John here. He makes this statement the standard for whether or not a preacher is a faithful preacher. He writes the following. To commend Christ, dying and rising again for the ungodly. To make Christ's love and power to save sinners known. This will be the main object of his ministry. He must increase, but I must decrease. Will be the ruling principle in all his preaching. He will be content that his own name is forgotten. So long as Christ crucified is exalted. I think Ryle's right. That summary is what every gospel preacher should aim for, to be like John. But not only gospel preachers. I I think we ought to make this the standard, each one of us, for our own witness before the world. Before, uh, before our own witness to each other, even. How ought all of us to be seeing each other when we hear one of us speaking about our faith? It ought to be, he must increase, I must decrease. Every one of us ought to have the same heart as the Apostle Paul when Paul wrote about his preaching ministry That we must not proclaim ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord and ourselves servants for Christ's sake. That should be our goal. Mine in a special way as a preacher, all of us in a daily way for our humbly pointing to Christ. John faithfully points to the one who is to come by humbly remembering his own place. Could there be a better way for people to know the king is coming than to not be distracted by the person who's saying the king is coming? Then John also faithfully points the way to one who comes by warning of the necessity of true repentance. He really challenges us here. Again, we might look at fruit and it might be false fruit in our lives. It is possible to give to the poor and have no true repentance. 
We see it every day. It's the, it's the thing that the news channels pride themselves on reporting about Hollywood. This person gave this much money, and the person has no repentance that, that I can see while they have these outward actions. Ho- hopefully, my, thankfully, I'm not their judge. But, but we can have the outward fruit and not have the inward repentance. And John really challenges us here with verse 17. Pointing us to the one who comes, he says, his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now Christ hasn't completed that task, has he? John is saying, Christ is coming, beware. We know that Christ did the first half of his task, the first time he came. And that some of what John was pointing to, he will one day return to complete. And verse 17 is an example of that, which is good because it reminds you and I that it wasn't just them back then that needed to be on guard and truly repentant, but that we too need to assess our repentance There's a necessity for it. Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. And it's even more emphatically directed at the church, at those who call themselves God's people. This imagery is used by Christ in a a number of parables. He, He does a very similar thing himself with wheat and chaff in a parable. He does something similar talking about a net thrown into the ocean and bringing up bad fish and good fish. Uh, Here, John uses this imagery of wheat and chaff. And this isn't as familiar to us as groomsmen, is it? Uh, Wheat and chaff. But wheat and chaff aren't the same weight. They look similar. They grow amongst each other. But wheat, the good thing, is heavier. And so to separate these things, they would reap the harvest, and then they would have these winnowing fans, and you would blow across the product product really hard, and the wheat, being heavier, would fall faster. So the wheat would fall to the ground, and the chaff would keep blowing because it was light, and it would just float off into the distance. And Christ is saying, when I come back, or John is saying about Christ, when Christ comes to judge... He's going to separate out the false repentance from the true. The false faith, the false professor, from the true believer. And better know, in that day, the chaff will blow, and then he will have it cast into the fire. But the truly repentant, he will gather into his barn. And say, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the challenge, the warning that John is giving us here. There's a necessity for we, the church, to be very certain about where our hope lies. Have we truly repented? Or are we fooling ourselves with dead works? One day Christ will come again, and we'd better be prepared. He points away from himself 
And his own baptism didn't save these people from that final judgment unless they have come in true repentance and faith. So he points to the one who comes through the warning about the judgment. And then finally, he also points to the one who comes by reminding of the hope of true repentance. What is the hope of true repentance? Again, it's not in the fruit of repentance. The hope is in the one who is coming. The one who, when he comes, verse 6 declares, Isaiah declares, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And John declares, the one coming after who's greater than I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John says, I'm only baptizing you with water. It's an outward thing. It's a sign and seal of God's grace, but it's not the grace itself by itself. But the one coming after me, he brings the real thing. What water itself cannot do, the Holy Spirit does. He's coming. He is the one on whom we are to place our hope. This is why in the shorter catechism, when we think about what is repentance unto life, it starts with an understanding of our sin and a hatred of our sin, and it includes turning from our sin and turning to Christ. Sometimes we forget that turning to Christ part. We think, I'm going to do better. Father, forgive me for doing this. I will try harder. There's a source of hope there that's a problem. Because I'm not going to do better. Not not forever. Eventually, I'm going to end up calling, like so many people call me for counseling, I will also eventually call a pastoral friend and say, I was doing really good. And then last week, right? If the source of our hope in repentance is turning and doing better, or even bearing good fruit, we will be discouraged in the end. Westminster Shorter says, not only a true sense of our sin, but also with an understanding of the mercy of God in Christ. And that becomes the hope and the motivation to turn from our sin unto God with a full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience and understanding that even, even as I'm coming to God, I understand He is a merciful God in Christ. There is the hope to which we look. That's why John cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You've been coming to me for baptism, but behold, there's the Lamb that takes your sin away. Not the water I just applied here at this river, but him. 
Behold, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In fact, in fact, John here in his humility is again seen, isn't it? I baptize you with water, but I can only get you so far. You need the hope of a greater. Again, J.C. Ryle writes on this, Man, when ordained, may administer the outward ordinances of Christianity with a prayerful hope. This is what I can do when I baptize uh, someone. With a prayerful hope that God will graciously bless the means which he has himself appointed. But man cannot read the heart of those to whom he ministers. He cannot make them receive the gospel into their consciences. He can apply baptismal water to them, but he cannot cleanse their inward nature. He can give the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper into their hands, but he cannot enable them to eat the body and blood of Christ by faith. Up to a certain point, he can go, but he can go no further. And John says, but he's coming. The one who can go further. He will baptize you with the Spirit and fire. The Spirit who washes us with renewal and regeneration, bringing to life that which was dead. So that God declares to us of this this work which Christ will do through His Spirit, He says, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh. I will do a heart transplant and give you a heart of flesh that beats in time with my truth. This is what Christ can do that baptism can only point to. The washing of renewal, regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, cleansing us and making us alive to the things of God. Baptism is a wonderful thing. It's a grace from God. It points us to what Christ does. And when we have faith, it assures us that what Christ has done is ours. But it is not the thing left to itself. We need Christ, the hope, who is salvation. I want to think about Christ, the hope of our true repentance, in terms of two things in our text here that are from the prophets. We can look first at what Christ does that, that John couldn't do. Make a payment. As we think about John, uh, John's ministry in Isaiah 40, uh, if you look at verses 4 through 6, we have John's ministry as foretold by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. But if we look at the context of that in Isaiah, something about Christ is said In Isaiah 40, 1 and 2, we read comfort. This is John's task. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her 
What is John supposed to cry out? Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The hope of repentance. One of the amazing ways to think of the hope of repentance is to consider that thought. Double for all our sins. That's what Christ brings. Double payment for all our sins. What does that mean? Well, well, the first thing we can say about it is that the payment is made in full. If it's been double paid, there's nothing left that we need to contribute for our salvation. Christ doesn't go and pay enough that maybe you can earn it from here. When Christ on the cross said, it is finished. He is declaring that he has paid the price in full. The debt which your sin created that deserves the wrath and curse of God. There's nothing left. Christ talks about draining the cup of God's wrath. The the Isaiah servant songs speak of him draining the cup's dregs. There's nothing left. Paid in full. But there's something even more astonishing being said by Isaiah when he says paying double. Not just paid in full, but paying double. Isaiah is anticipating that Christ not only takes fully all the sin and the guilt and the shame and the curse which we have incurred. But Isaiah is anticipating that Christ doesn't just get us to neutrality, taking what you've done wrong and leaving you neutral before God. In the gospel of Christ, we have Christ also imputing to you and I all his righteousness before God. So that instead of God the Father saying, well, you you no longer deserve death, so try to be better from here on out. In the gospel of Christ, the Father says, my righteous daughter, my righteous son, in you I am well pleased, well done even though we haven't done it. Because he gazes at his son and says, in him, I am well pleased. And Paul tells us that the proof of God's pleasure in the righteousness of Christ and in that righteous life that is given to us, the credit to our account, is seen in that the Father raised Christ from the dead. It's not just that our debt is paid in full, but our righteousness is supplied apart from us. He has paid double for all your sins. Or if we look at another prophet who speaks about John the Baptist's ministry, uh, this one not mentioned in chapter 3, but mentioned in chapter 1 of Luke. We have John's ministry described by Malachi as declared by Gabriel in chapter 1. 
And in Malachi 3, verse 3, we read that when John comes and prepares the way, the Lord himself will appear and he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. It's possible that this is what John's referring to when he says baptism with the spirit and fire. That the spirit's work of the individual, it's not two things being listed. It's what the Spirit does. He's like a refiner's fire. Christ gives us the Spirit in our hearts to burn away with the glorious work of Christ, the dross and the filth to purify us. Christ atones and Christ gives his righteousness. But you see, Christ also transforms by the work of his Spirit. He atones and he cleanses the sons of Levi. What's the next thought in Malachi's prophecy? It's the same thing that's listed in Ezekiel 36 when God says, I'll give you a new heart and my spirit I will put within you. The next thought is now that you are redeemed, your heart will be turned toward my law and to my service and to honoring me with your life. Our righteousness is Christ. That's what God the Father sees in us. But he also, through his spirit, transforms us day by day. And that's good news of hope for repentant sinners. Because we know that we have to repent often. Maybe more than daily. Hourly, we must repent. And to know that the one who has already paid our debt. And whose righteousness is what gives us a place before the Father now, is also day by day making us and conforming us to his own image by the work of the Spirit. When John comes calling on us to give to those in need, he's describing the fruit of Christ having baptized you with the Spirit and fire. He's describing the result that you should expect in being saved freely by his grace. And what hope that is for poor, discouraged sinners. In fact, it's a hope we need to hang on to. You are going to probably have days when you forget it. And John the Baptist, then, is a great encouragement to you even in that day. Let me share one more instance of John's ministry with you in closing. It's presented to us in Matthew chapter 11. John, who in our text is shut up in prison, in prison, he loses sight of the hope 
that he had presented in his preaching. And so he writes to Christ through, or sends to Christ through his disciples and says, Was I wrong? Was I wrong to put my hope in you? Or is there someone else that I ought to put my hope in? What does Jesus say to him on that day? He says, go back. Go back and remind John what you see. The blind see. The deaf hear. The dumb speak. The lame walk. The prisoners free. Go back and remind him what you see. Beloved, when you are discouraged, you need to do what John needed to do in prison. Preach the hope of repentance to yourself. And the hope of repentance is not how well you're doing at repenting. It is remembering who, who is greater. Who opened your eyes? Who loosed your tongue to sing hallelujah? Who gave you life eternal? Who died and death could not hold him? Who gives you life in his name? When your heart is broken, when your soul is troubled, the hope of repentance is Christ is greater than I. Let's pray.